This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Okie dokie, folks. Welcome back. Horticulture still to rushing, and I am glad to be talking with you about gardening. I haven't been doing much the past week because I've been traveling. Java, you know where I am, don't you, man? Lancashire. <laughs> I'm a Lancashire. That's right, northern England. Uh, you know, I mean, have you, you've been in Mississippi in the summertime, right? And I know why you go to Lancashire. <laughs> yeah, heck, heck with that. I mean, it got up to 72 yesterday. <laughs> and uh, I'm not bragging at all. I'm over here to cover flower shows. And matter of fact, just yesterday, uh, two days after I got over here, uh, I, I went over to uh, to visit a, uh, a new community garden where they took an 1800s greenhouse and they've converted it into a place where people can come in and grow seedlings and grow vegetable plants and, and uh, the stuff that they grow up the little gardens outside that used to be an estate garden, you know, a bigger, wealthy landowner's garden. Now it's a community garden where they're growing food to take to food markets. And I actually interviewed an interesting fellow, but we'll talk about that later. How you been? Man, I've been doing good, man. I think, I don't know when you officially left, but you may have missed the storms that came through and, you know, it have been down trees. And, and and power no. lines and things everywhere. No. So <laughs> I think my I think my street was the only one in my whole neighborhood that didn't lose power. As a matter of fact, uh, I didn't leave till Monday, but uh, I rode around when we got off the radio program Fridays. You know, and I came in through last Thursday night, Friday morning. I, I walked around, and uh, there's a lot of destruction. I mean, not not to diminish people who, who lost a lot of property and got injured and even some lives lost. Well, there's a lot of down power lines. Even when I left Monday, uh, almost, you know, half a week later, people down power. I actually went to my pub, and because we, nobody has candles anymore, we took our, I don't know if you know this trick, but you can turn the light on your flashlight on your phone and put a, a, a plastic bottle of water on top of it, and it glows like a lantern. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. Okay, that's a new trick for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, just just turn the flashlight and sit on the table and put a you know plastic bottle of water on top, and uh, it was kind of creepy, but kind of uh, well, it was just like we used to do 100, 120 years ago before we had electricity. But anyway, uh, I know it's summertime. You know, I was traveling on the solstice, and uh, I'm in a place where it's actually daylight two hours longer than in Mississippi. The sun doesn't come up here. Uh, the sun comes up here uh, just before 5 in the morning, and it doesn't set until 9.30 at night. I mean, the sun is still up. Wowzers. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, But anyway, um, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. I've been uh, helping people on the Mississippi Gardening Facebook page, answering emails. And I know a lot of people are having trouble with, with, uh, with water issues, too much water, not enough water. The tomatoes have leaf curls, all sorts of bugs and blights, and and uh, a lot of people are worried about you know, how can I get these plants through. That's what you and I are here for, Java. So if folks got stuff they want to talk about with the gardening, 
Uh, meanwhile, let's start up uh, talking with a fellow in Memphis named Roy. Roy, what you got going on this morning? Well, good morning, Felder. I got a question for you. Howdy. For a couple of years, yeah. I've seen these Asian jumping worms in my vegetable gardens. And I'm just yeah. wondering, what do you think about them? Now, these are the, the, the worms coming out of the trees? No, these are in the dirt. And they, when you uncover the dirt, they jump around like crazy. Oh, oh, oh! They're they're, they're hopping around. Uh, earthworms, right? Uh, I, I actually have those too, and I'm not sure. You know, we have this this fairly new worm in America called the Asian jumping worm. I don't know if you've heard about those, uh, but they're a real serious issue. Uh, particular, I saw some a couple of years ago in my friend Roger Swain's garden up in New Hampshire. Uh, it is a, a new type of worm. And when you uncurve them, they just flop and flip around. You know, not like worms have always done. These look like they've gone crazy. Um, and like I say, I don't know if we've got them in Mississippi yet because I don't know how they've gotten here that fast. But they're they're not as benefit. They're still beneficial as worms are, but they are so voracious. They eat so much stuff that they actually go through the organic matter and leaf litter in the forest so quick that they're actually causing problems. But there's nothing we can do about them except just enjoy them. So if if, if it is an Asian jumping worm, other than that, it's just earthworms. You're thinking, hang on, I don't want to be out here in the sun and heat. So uh, is there something specific about them though, or are you just trying to run it by somebody? Well, yeah, I just um, how do you tell the difference between the Asian variety and our common variety? Uh, that's actually a good question, and I, I looked that up a couple of years ago because I wasn't sure, and uh, I've forgotten. <laughs> what I'll do is over the next few minutes, I, 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 I'm, I'm sitting in front of my uh, my laptop, and, uh, and I'll see if I can find the distinction. It almost doesn't matter, though, Roy, because there's really not anything we can do about them. I mean, practically, there's nothing we can do except just kind of go with this flow. Uh, you know, that's one thing, I, the takeaway I learned is it, once you got them, you got them. And uh, they're just extra active worms is all. Gotcha, gotcha. So okay. I'll have, well, I'll, I won't I'll worry have, about them. Well, there's nothing to worry about. I mean, there's plenty of stuff to worry about. And uh, this is one of those little irritations uh, and a concern. But, you know, my philosophy has always been if you can't fix it, flee it, or fight it, let's just flow with it. And this is one of those cases. Gotcha, gotcha. But I, All right, you know, thank you a lot, Stay tuned, and I'll, I'll do some research and catch me up and share it with y'all. Great, thanks. All righty, thank you, man. Okay, let's go slide just down the road a little bit to Chico and Oxford. Hey, Chico, how are you doing? Hey, good morning, y'all. Um, sorry, I got to yell. I'm hitchhiking on the side of the road between Abbeville and Oxford, and there's cars passing me at a high rate of speed. Uh, you and y'all are headed up to the North Mississippi Hill Country Picnic in Southern Marshall County. If, if y'all are, y'all stop and pick me up. <laughs> Maybe next time, uh, Chico. You should have gave us a heads up. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. But I got a question. Is uh, I'm, I'm out here on the side of the highway, and there's all these, I think they call them black-eyed Susans. Yep. And I, I love this time of year because I get to pick them off the side of the road for my redheaded woman, and picking them off the side of the road feels like I'm stealing them from Tate Reeves. But yesterday yeah. I'd, I'd put some in some returnable Coca-Cola bottles for her and uh, filled them up with water, and this old man approached me, and he told me, and I figure old men knew what, know what they're talking about, but he told me that those kind of flowers 
do not do well sitting in water, that I shouldn't put water in the bottles. Am I being well, led that's, that's true. Not really. Uh, a lot of the roadside wildflowers, uh, believe it or not, some of them aren't even native to Mississippi. They, they've, they've blown in, they've come in with you know loads of hay and, and, and blown off of railroads and all that. But they grow best in prairie conditions, which is typically is pretty dry. So I think think uh, East Texas, Oklahoma, you know, prairie type conditions without good dirt. Uh, very think roadside conditions. A lot of these wildflowers grow best in poor, uh, dry soil. You don't see them down in the ditches so much. You see them up on the sides. So right. really, the the, the the key is look where most of them are growing and plant them in similar conditions. we got a whole bunch of stuff that grows well down in the ditches that won't grow up on the, the hillsides. See, so it's a, it's a, a little microhabitat thing. But in general, yeah, most of those grow wildflowers grow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and by the way, if, if you, are, you, are you digging some up to take home? Well, I'm picking a bunch of them to take up to the Blues Festival, to the North Mississippi Hill Country Picnic, to put on stage. And if they didn't need water, I didn't want them to put water in them to have it, you know, turn it over on the stage and whatnot. You and Jalen need to come on up here to the picnic for the bees. For, 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 okay. Well, hey, here's the thing. If you're just making flowers, if you're just cutting stems of flowers, yeah, put those in water. But if you're digging up the plants, don't do those. But uh, cut flowers... Uh, I, I put them where at least half of the stem is in some water to keep them from wilting. Because otherwise, by the time you get a ride, those things could be wilted. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just cutting stems. I'm not fooling with the dirt and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And uh, by the way, anybody listening who's on that rural stretch road, if you see a guy with a bunch of wildflowers, he's not crazy. Give him a ride. That's right. you got to go to the picnic. I'll see y'all there. <laughs> okay, see you, Chico. Thanks for calling. Uh, by the way, John, I just did some, re- some research, and uh, I found out how you can tell an Asian jumping worm from the regular European night crawlers. A lot of people don't realize that the big worms in our soils are often are not native worms. They're from they're they're from Europe. Uh, but the difference is, you know, worms have got the they're, they're long and skinny, and they got this little um, I don't know what you call it. It's like a a ring around them. It's yeah, I was going to say like a wrist like a wristband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, the Asian ones, that band goes all the way around like a belt. Uh, the 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 ones that we're familiar with, it just goes part of the way around like a saddle. And the other thing is, you pick them up. The uh, our worms, the ones we've had a long time, they're kind of slimy feeling. Asian worms are kind of smooth. Now, this is assuming that that our caller from Memphis, Roy, wants to get down that close to find out. But you know, if it's if the ring goes all the way around it. And it's jumping like crazy, and it feels kind of dry as an Asian jumping worm. You know, more. You know, this should have been one of those questions. I answered the question nobody asked. It says somebody actually asked this one. Somebody wanted to know, man. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay, let's slide down to Clinton and talk with Danny. Good morning, Danny. How are you? Doing good. How are you, sir? So far, so I, good. I dug my ice potatoes yesterday. And I did. Well, some of them were smushy, but about three quarters of them did good. I got about a, a short roll, uh, about a foot tub full. Being I'm half Irish, and a lot of people think the Irish potatoes come from Ireland, but you know they don't originate from Ireland. No, they come from South America. Right. 
and there's all kinds of them. Do you know why the Irish hate the English? Uh, keep in mind, I'm in England right now. But still, it's, it's, okay, when they had <laughs> the, the Irish state of blight, and the English had uh, had conquered Ireland, and they had to work on the farms, their own farms for nothing, and they had a little yeah. lot of land to grow their own food. And when the right. ice potato blight came, and they didn't have anything to eat. And That's the, right. And, 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 and it, the, the story goes downhill rapidly from there. Believe me, I, yeah. I understand. That's so. That's uh, anyway, my, but but my people. That's when my people but, came but over you, with you. Well, so so, but you got a pretty decent harvest. Some of them are mushy, I guess, from all the rain we had last week. Oh yeah, but they they did yeah. good. They, I just need to plant more next time. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and also, uh, you know, I don't I don't know when you planted yours, but in central Mississippi, you know, late February. Uh, you know, the potatoes don't like freezes. They don't like hot weather. They like a long, cool growing season, which we don't have in Mississippi. You know, we can still get a, a, a freeze in, in late March that can that can damage the, the new growth. So it's going to be a gamble. You've got to plant them early enough so they have enough time to make potatoes before it gets too hot because they start petering out about now. So it takes about 100 days, 100, two, you know, three and a half or four months to get a good crop. So it's always going to be a race planting them early enough without them freezing, or late enough, still get a harvest before the plant starts. I got just barely more potatoes than I planted, but some people have had real good success. That was my case. A question on my cucumbers: my vines, the leaf will just wilt, and then pretty soon the whole vine will will die. And uh, we. You know, we we have, you know, this is something I, I've been working with with home vegetable gardens for forty five years. I guess a long, long time, and uh, we have a lot of, 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 of fungi and bacteria in the soil that can cause root rot. If the plants stay too wet for a little too long, or too dry a little bit too long, or back to back, they're more susceptible to diseases that they can normally. Uh, 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 resist. Sort of like we all have cold germs, but we don't have have colds. So you just try to stay healthy. Uh, but anyway, there's a lot of root diseases, stem diseases, and sometimes there's some insects around the base of the plant. But if it's the whole plant's collapsing, it's going to be a root or lower stem problem. And about all you I, can do is watch, watch your watering. That's about all you can do. I, I saw online that mix hydrogen peroxide in water and, and water them, and, and they would kill a fungus. And it let them well, it, all more water. Well, it, it, it does. It doesn't. No, no. It does. Well, there's always something. Every time you hear one of these these uh, home remedies, there's a grain of truth in it. But whether it actually really works or not, rarely. Most of the time, no. It's just something people do. They're grasping at straws. But uh, it doesn't hurt to do that. But you know, you can't kill a fungus. You know, it's, you can you can slow it spread. But um, you can't actually kill a fungus unless you're going to kill your plant, too. So anyway, hydrogen peroxide is one of those home remedies. doesn't hurt to do it, but it doesn't really help either. But, you know, whatever makes people feel better, I'm not gonna, unless it causes problems, I, I just let it slide. I want my cucumbers so, off my uh, 
seven-month-old grandbaby that's starting to eat, love to chew on, on uh, cucumbers because she's um, cutting teeth. <laughs> yeah. Well, now here, okay. here's the good news. We, ha- we have up until, in central Mississippi, you have up until the first week in August to plant some of the things like cucumbers and tomatoes and all and still get a harvest before fall. So you can replant. Uh, and you may not have as many problems on those that are planted now that the soil isn't quite so cold and quite so wet as when you set those out. So they might have gotten off to a kind of a slow start, and the heat is just too much for them. So you know, go ahead and start some more plants. I have. I have about a month ago. Just to see. Well, I thank you, fellas. I know I'm taking up the time. No, it ain't no time. Hey, that's exactly the reason we're here, Danny. Thank you for for. Thank you for helping take up me and Java's time because that's what we're here for. Now, Feld, I feel like that is another one to add to the list of the home remedies. Had you heard of that uh, mixing the hydrogen peroxide with water to uh, kill a fungus? I, I have. I wrote a column uh, for the uh, Mississippi Press Association. Uh, I don't know. A lot of people may not realize, but my, I have a column that's sent out every week to every uh, weekly and daily newspaper in the state, and the editors can run it doesn't cost them anything. Uh, it's put out by the Mississippi Press Association. But uh, I just did a, a, a call recently on, on most of the myths that I've heard over at Gary Bachman, Norman Winter, all of us extension horticulture people. We hear it over and over and over. And we're not going to argue with anybody because Aunt Mamie said it's true. But the fact is, there's a whole lot of stuff people do that just makes them feel better. And it really doesn't hurt anything. So, anyway, hey, I want to mention, um, I actually smuggled a tomato into England wait in my a, carry-on luggage. Wait a minute, I Felder. Did. They're going to come looking for you. Uh, yeah, it, they, I, there's no evidence left, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I brought a green, my first big tomato of the year, my very first one. It was starting to turn pink before I left. I said, I can't leave that. So I put it in my carry-on luggage with a handful of peppers, and I brought it. And it's turning so pretty and red. But I brought it. I smuggled a green tomato to England. We have a fugitive on our anyway, hands, people. <laughs> that's that's right. I'm miscreant. But by the time anybody comes here, I mean it turned pure. As a matter of fact, let, let's run the picture I sent you for on, on today's podcast. I got a lot of stuff to talk about, and I've got an interview I want to run uh, in just a few minutes. But uh, let's go over, up to Amory and talk with Janice. Hi, Janice. Good morning. Good morning. Howdy. What's up? I have something eating all of my tender little plants, beans, strawberries, even the black-eyed seasons. And I don't think it's a rabbit because I've protected them with chicken wire, and I can't find a grasshopper or what are the cutworms? What can I do? Oh, that's a good one because you know in Mississippi this time of year it could be anything, Janice, uh, and it could you know it, it could be a rabbit, could also be mice or rats that come out and feed at night because they I've, I've had them eat my tomatoes before so uh it could be something like that not much you could do about it except for the plants like strawberries if you could put some chicken wire over the bed but you know it's not real practical and chicken wire costs more than strawberries would but unless you can find a critter really can't make a, a recommendation other than some way of some version of fencing them out, either with hardware cloth or insect netting or a fence or something like that. You know, we can't come up with a specific control without knowing what the specific critter is. So the general solution is always some form of barrier. 
which means dance your chicken wire. And it's not fun, but that's the only practical thing we can do. But could it be an insect? It's also eating the black-eyed Susan. Yeah, that that sounds more like an insect. I tell you what, if if it's an insect doing that, the chances are good it's coming up at night. A lot of caterpillars and things will crawl up at night in the cover darkness to avoid predators. So what you might want to do is go out, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, even midnight, you know, plenty of time after dark with a flashlight and see if you can find one of them. But, uh, you know, sometimes caterpillars. You know, cut, cut worms uh, will will stay down the soil in the daytime and come up at night. But uh, the, you can also dig around the base of the plants because if they're there, they'll be fairly shallow. They're, they're not going to be deep like uh, like earthworms or anything. So you might want to just, you know, scooch around with your fingers, see if you can find something, or let's just check with a flashlight. But you need to wait at least a couple hours after dark because that's when they come out. And I'm just guessing here. Okay. And thank you for your advice about uh, uh, not ridding of shrubbery because my gardenias came back beautifully, more pretty than ever. <laughs> did you prune them hard or did they just come back on their own? I did. I pruned them back, yes. <laughs> but they came back. Yeah, that's beautiful. And enjoy your trip yeah. in England. It's a gorgeous place and it amazes me how the flowers are so pretty all the time because they get so much rain. Well, they 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 get they have the same climate as Seattle. It doesn't rain every now and then. It rains really hard. They say it's chucking it down. Is what they say, chucking it down. Um, they have hard rains every now and then, but it's usually just short rains. You know, it. But the the difference is, it's cool here in the summertime, and it cools out at night. And here's the thing: that a lot of people don't realize. They talk about how pretty the flowers look. England is on the same latitude as Nova Scotia. The sun is at a real low angle, and because of the sun rays have to go through so much atmosphere, certain colors like blues and greens really pop visually. In Mississippi, the sun is higher up overhead, and the, the, the reds and oranges the yellows, the hot colors, tend to glow more. But the further north you go, the crisper and clearer the blues and the greens are. So a lot of times it's just an optical illusion, really. Well, that explains why all those window boxes in Wales and Ireland and England uh, are just gorgeous they're, all summer long. They're, they're gorgeous, Part, partly because it doesn't get hot, partly because it cools down at night, which gives plants a break, partly because of uh, the, the angle of the sun, but partly because a lot of those flowers are artificial. I hate to tell folks that, but <laughs> there's so many artificial flowers in England. <laughs> <laughs> oh my appreciate it thank you so much okay that was janice up at amory let's slide uh, down to neshoba county bill what's going on man hey um i am uh, following up on your advice last week on my tree I had a limb fall off of it and it damaged the tree uh-huh and well, yeah. since then, we've had a whole bunch more bad weather, and I had two more uh, limbs fall off and damage the trunk. This is the main trunk of the tree, and yeah. I would say just about 75% of the uh, trunk is damaged. Um, so the top is getting some uh, food, but uh, it's you know, not very much. And I'm wondering, 
if I cut, cut that uh, top off at about 12 feet, uh, aside from the fact that it's going to look a little weird, uh, is that tree going to live or is that... Okay, okay. Re- remind me what kind of tree it was because I, I, I have a real maple. short-term memory in my old... Maple tree. Yeah, you know, you can, you know, you can, you know, you know what bonsai is. You've seen bonsai plants. Yeah, sure. little plants kept in pots. Okay, all you're talking about is a big size bonsai. You know, you're you're shaping it into a almost like a topiary type thing rather than a tree. And as long as you make a cut pretty close to, let, let's say where the where the uh, the trunk is broken off, if you cut that part down to just almost flush with a limb that's going. You know, a strong limb, you're just going to have a sort of a Dr. Seuss looking tree instead of a maple maple tree. It's going to have it's going to be characterful rather than tree like. But it's okay to prune plants like this and shape them up. It's just called topiary. But yours is uh, unhappy topiary instead of on purpose right, topiary. Right. So just ch- ch- turn it into an old purpose topiary and let it be you know kind of what you see in a spooky old movie or something, and and it'll work. <laughs> Okay, well, that's I mean, no Not much else we can do, you know. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, as long as you make the the cut where it's not a great big flush cut, but as close as you can without leaving much of a stub, it'll heal over pretty quickly. It'll just could be careful. Matter of fact, you can actually turn it into something that is a a sight to behold. We see this a lot of old gardens, the botanic gardens, where they've done this to ancient trees, and they actually. They're actually kind of cool looking. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I uh, I'm glad to know that it, the tree won't get killed if I uh, cut yeah, it down yeah, yeah. that much. And uh, no, uh, no, no, just, no, 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 no. Well, I'm just going to have to live you, with people slowing down. Yeah. Well, put put your sign out there saying, "I'll uh, uh, say you're in Neshoba County Topiary." You know, in other words, just go with the flow. Uh, you know, you don't have anything to lose, and uh, and it may live for twenty, thirty, forty years. and be more and more interesting, kind of gnarly looking, you know. So, and, and it's okay. We just have to shift the way we look at things. Okay, okay, I can do that. So. Okay, I'll, I'll give you one. I'll give you one kind of a coarse example. Uh, I had a little cancer cut off the end of my nose, and it's healed over now. But instead of just being an old guy, I'm an old guy with a boogered up nose now. And I look in the mirror, and I just I just see old me, uh, white hair growing on my ears, and kind of a kind of a wonky shaped nose and all. And I'm just going with that flow. It's just part of getting aging gracefully, is what we call it. <laughs> <laughs> At okay. least that's, that's uh, the way I'm doing. That's the way I'm doing it. <laughs> Okay. Well, from time to time, people will call me graceful, so I don't know if I want to pile some more stuff on, but uh, I'll give it a try. There you go. It doesn't hurt. doesn't hurt, man. Good luck on it, Bill. Send me some, hey, send me a before and after picture. Oh, okay. I can do that. Yeah, it looks okay, pretty let's, ugly let's, right hey, now. Hey, I've had old dogs that one of their ears wouldn't stand up, and I still loved it. <laughs> You know what I'm saying. I do, I do. I got, I've got a, I got an old dog that uh, stopped uh, listening to what I have to say, probably because she can't hear, but uh, doesn't stop the way well, I feel about it. 
uh, not assuming that plants have feelings, but what sort of bet that rather than cut it down, if you just sort of shape it up a little bit, that if your maple had a tail, it would wag it in gratefulness. <laughs> Good luck, on man. Felder, we um we're, we're coming up on the halfway mark of the show, but we have a full bank of calls, man. They wanna they want your okay. advice. They want your advice this morning. But this is what we're gonna do. This is what we're gonna do, so everybody knows because we have to get your interview in this hour. Um, we're gonna talk with Ann from Carpenter, um, Mississippi, and then we're gonna take our cheesy tune break. Come back with our interview, which is really really short, and then we're gonna talk with uh, Mike and Corinth, Lynn and Jackson, and the rest of our callers. Okay. All righty, man. Sounds like a full bank. Let's do it. So let's slide over to Carpenter. Call with Ann. Hey, Ann. Good morning. Thanks for holding. I am good, Felder. How are you? So far, so good. Not so bad. Okay. Look, I have a Japanese, and it begins with an S, tree. The leaves kind of look like a pithelum. And when I was watering the other day, I noticed, like, sawdust around at the bottom. Yep. So I'm assuming it's got some worms in it. Does that mean it's going to die? Uh, I don't know if it means it's going to die, but there's nothing you can do about it. We don't have any sprays that will penetrate into those holes and around under the bark to get to them. So uh, a lot of times trees can, can get this kind of damage, and it compartmentalizes it, and it doesn't really hurt it that much. A lot of times they'll survive with that. Uh, if it's a whole bunch of them and it's coming out of little holes, chances are it's going to girdle the tree and not much you can do. Uh, if it's possible, you know, like with figs or, or, uh, or, or uh, there's a whole bunch of trees that, you, that have that, you can cut it off below there and they'll sprout back out just fine. It's just like, you know, getting run over with a pickup truck or cutting it down or, or hit it with a lawnmower. A lot of times they can sprout back out and they'll grow really fast. So uh, if it's a valuable plant, you might consider uh, if it's a lot of the sawdust, uh, go ahead and cut it below there, and they'll sprout. You've seen people try to cut plants down and sprout back out to the ground. This will do the same thing. It just they thin out the new shoots, so only have two or three or four, so it'll be a multiple trunk plant instead of a witch's broom type thing. So that's what I do with my fig. My fig came back perfectly fine. Yeah, well, it's all the way down at the ground. It's where I saw the sun. So. Oh, well, I hate to lose it because it sure is going to be a pretty tree. Yeah, well, here's a, I wish I could send you a picture, but I had a cleara shrub, a great, you know, normally it's a, just a bush by somebody's house, uh, but mine was 80 years old. It was planted when the house was built, and it got killed this past winter, and I cut, it had five main trunks. I cut them off perfectly level, and I put a, a, a wayside, I put a, a round clear glass tabletop on top of it, so I got me a table out in the front yard now with a, a potted plant on it. That sounds good. All right. Thank you, Felder. Okay. Appreciate your call. And now it's time for Answers to Unasked Questions with Felder Rushing. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Java. Uh, There's a whole lot of people who find right now at garden centers, they've got these little insect hotels or boxes with hollow tubes and straws and stuff and butterfly houses, and they're really cute. So I asked a a fellow who is a top uh, backyard pollinator, top expert in Great Britain about this during our interview yesterday, and uh, George Pilkington, who's a certified, uh, he's a wildlife specialist, 
And here's what he said. It's only about a two-minute interview. I thought it'd be interesting for folks to see what, what he thinks. And by the way, the key word is rubbish. Okay, George, you're not afraid to call things like you see it, but you struck a nerve in your talk when you said that bee hotel, insect hotels, that they're just a bunch of what we in Mississippi would call a hooey. What do you think about bug or bee hotels? Well, there's major differences between bees and bugs, so I don't, wouldn't know which bugs you're on about. But if you want something to attract bees, make sure it just attracts bees and nothing else. You don't want earwigs and spiders and other creatures, other insects going in there and will predate upon the bees that use these bee hotels. Hotel is somewhere where you go on holiday or you stay for a few days. Some of these solitary bees will live in there nine, ten months problem with many of them is there's all kinds of pests that could be inside and there's pollen mite for example they can live in a bee hotel we have lizards who would just lap them up the bees yeah yeah we yeah we put them put them out of the way of the lizards really yeah you know, but so so when you see one of these bee hotels things with little straws and all like that it, well, in, load in of rubbish. yeah no I, you know well, you call it bee cemetery a I bee think. cemetery yeah it's a bee nest box let's call it what it is not a bee hotel if you want a decent nest box, you've got to make sure that you're looking after the bees and you're protecting them from pests and predators. Why are you putting it out if you're not helping them? A lot of the pests will be inside the tubes or inside the cavities and they'll just eat everything that's in there Yeah, and you won't know that. Well, one of the things that I've been doing is just piling old logs and branches and things up in a, in a row. A lot of our bees will make nests in those. There will be pests in there and some of them pests can live in there for up to three years and just waiting for the next unfortunate bee to go and use it. So basically these bee hotels are mostly just nice-looking garden accessories. Greenwashing, absolute greenwashing, yeah. People think they're doing good, well, in fact, they're doing more harm. Okay, and by the way, Java, I don't know if you picked up on that accent. If it sounded like some old Beatle interviews, that is a classic Liverpool accent. Anybody from Great Britain will instantly say, that's a scouser there, Liverpudlian. But anyway, he's saying those bee hotels, they're interesting, uh, they're nice little accents, but they're really not that great for bees. And uh, this is a fellow who's been studying it for 40 years. So anyway, I hope that's uh, answered a, a question that nobody really answered. Are these things really worth it? And I'm thinking, no, not really, but they sure are pretty. So anyway, let's go to uh, to, to Jackson and talk with Lynn. Hey, Lynn, good morning. Good morning, Felder. How are you? Fine. What's going on? Uh, I have a friend. She's in her late 70s. She has uh, She's moved to Jackson from the West Coast to retire. She has a, a nice little oh house boy. in a nice neighborhood. And, yeah, really. The uh, problem she's having right now is she has uh, um, wisteria in her front yard. They're, they're the kind that have been cut back really hard. They're like six feet tall, and most of them are beginning to sprout out again. But one was hit really hard by that freeze in May. Yeah. So it. Yeah. Did, what kind of plant was it, it again? What, what kind of? Uh, what, what kind of plant uh, was it? Crepe myrtle. Sorry. Crepe yeah, myrtle. I got, I got you, got you. Right. Okay. So what's so? What's she worried about? It, it, it's like six foot tall, dead limbs, maybe three, four inches across. She has a gentleman, right. I say gentleman, who is uh, helping her with her yard, and he has offered to spray these and see if he can't get it to come back. Now, they've done that little bark shedding thing that crepe myrtle do, 
and most of them look like they're coming along. But this one is yeah. dead to the ground. But it is beginning yeah. to sprout out at the roots. Right. So I'm telling her that her best bet is to just cut it down and start over. Um, she's a little reluctant. She's, you know, she wants to save it, and I'm telling her there's nothing to save. Yeah. But in her late 70s, yeah. not particularly good health, I'm wondering if she should just have that dug up and start over again, or will it grow quickly enough to be at least interesting in the next couple of years? Yes. Well, we ha- we have to balance several things here. First, first, first uh, is not the horticulture. The first is she's 70. She's reluctant to cut it down to get rid of it, and that's as important as anything. Um, we have a lot of crepe myrtles uh, in, in, all over the place that are actually killed or seriously damaged that normally can take a winter time, but they were seriously damaged this year. And some are coming out very thin. Some are coming out none at all. Some are just perfectly fine. So it, it's no telling why or which ones would do well. But uh, to answer the, the horticulture question, you can cut a crepe myrtle down to the ground to try to get rid of it. Many people have tried, and they sprout back out. So it can come back out perfectly fine. Uh, and if she wants to do that, she'll have results this year. It's even possible that the new sprouts could bloom this year, but certainly next year. But when you when you cut that far down, you'll get a lot of sprouts. And what she would want to do is come back this winter and thin them out to the strongest three or four or five and let those become new main trunks. And they will grow really fast because the roots are intact. The roots are going to push that new growth. So it'll take oh, three or four weeks, maybe a little bit more than a month for the new growth to come out, but it will really, really jump. And you said there's already some coming out anyway. So I would just thin it out to right. the strongest three or four or five and let those become new trunks. And it won't be balanced. You know, it won't, be, won't match the others, but they'll do fine. They, they really will. So whether to go that route or to start over something else because symmetry is – it depends on whether uh, – uh, Symmetry is more important than um, than sympathy, if that makes sense. So if she wants symmetry, right. I'd just get rid of put something else out there. One quick thing. She's not familiar with the crepe myrtle. So it's got that, that bark peeling off thing that it does in the spring. That's and normal. I need to, that's normal. I, that's, I need to reassure her of that. Okay. okay. The, word, the, the, the word is exfoliating bark. It's called exfoliating it does that on purpose. I mean, that, that's normal. There's se- several different plants that have exfoliating bark, and crepe myrtle is one of them. So she doesn't need to worry about that. I tell her, and she's from the West Coast, tell her it's like the uh, the eucalyptus trees on the West Coast. They do that, too. All right. Okay, good. So how, how, how are right, you doing? Thank you so that? much. Okay, man. Good luck. I appreciate you helping her out, too. Take care. Okay. You bet. Okay, uh, let's slide uh, over to car. No, way up to the icebox to current. Hey, Mike, what's going on? Hey, uh, I just had three observations. Uh, the previous gentleman uh, kind of correlates to that. We had two uh, seven-foot-tall little peddlings that were that we thought were dead from the frost, and I called you and you told me to cut them back and. I cut them back east uh, eight inches from the ground, and they're about two feet tall now. Uh, they're doing fine. So, yeah, you, you probably have a, you probably have too many. You might want to thin some of those sprouts out so you don't have too many, like a witch's broom. Right. And the energy that will go to what you cut. Yeah. That, that, and go ahead and do that soon, and the energy that would have gone to what you cut off will go into what's left. It will grow even better. 
I will. And the other thing, uh, about five years ago, we started getting uh, Japanese beetles. And uh, yeah. I have been, been noticing our crepe myrtles, uh, their blooms is one thing they really liked. And I've kind of got a theory. I want to see what you thought about it. Uh, it seems like the crepe myrtles have adapted to the timing and they're blooming later till the beetle goes back into the ground, uh, kind of self-defense. Uh, uh-huh. and I, I don't know what you thought about that, but uh, I just got to tell well, it. That's, 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 that's a good theory, and there, there is a lot of scientific evidence that plants will adapt to pest pressures. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, that we didn't know 15 years ago. They, they've got some important, really good studies that show that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Japanese beetles. Now, we're talking about the kind of iridescent green ones or those brown ones. Uh, the iridescent green. Yeah. yeah. See, those are a major problem. They're a major problem in Michigan and Minnesota. Your cold doesn't bother them at all. You know, they're, they're a huge problem. They're more of a problem the further north you go than we have down here. So um, I, it may just be a little coincidental, but... Um, you know, you got to keep in mind the Japanese beetles and crepe myrtles are the same part of the world. They sort of grew up together. And, uh, you know, you can't have, just like you can't have ladybugs without having aphids for them to eat. Uh, you can't really have June, uh, uh, these June bug things without crepe myrtles and things for them to eat. So it's sort of a hand-in-hand thing. And for what it's worth, birds eat a lot of those beetles. So they act in part, part of the ecosystem. Bottom line That's is, there's not much you can do about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, uh, yeah, I'm reluctant to spray my chase trees because the bumblebees love chase oh, yeah. trees. Ab- I, I hate to, uh, but uh, yeah, the absolutely. beetles seems to like those blooms too. But my last question, uh, uh, for some reason, we don't have any hummingbirds. And I'm just curious. We did have a few a month ago, but uh, none now. Well, this uh, is this is up for the past forty something years. You know, I hear that uh, a lot of people have a lot of them. A lot of people don't have any. Uh, but this time of year, they're going out there nesting, and they don't quite come to feeders unless they're looking for protein for little spiders and aphids and things like that. So a lot of times, they sort of disappear from our feeders temporarily uh, in the late spring and early summer, but they come back. And a whole lot of them that we see in the springtime are just passing through. You know, the hummingbirds that we see in, in uh, April and May, are the, they make it all the way up to Pennsylvania and Vermont and stuff. See, So a lot of them are just passing through, and those that stick around, a whole lot of them are just, they're making their nest right now. But there's plenty of them out there. I see a lot of people posting pictures on the Mississippi Facebook, uh, po- posting uh, little videos of the hummingbirds. So they're out there. It's just a matter That's of, right. uh, like the one fishing. You know the fish are out there, but sometimes they ain't biting what you put on the hook. <laughs> well, that's all I have. I appreciate your information. It's a good observation, though. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Mike. Now, oh, we're going to go boy. from... Thank you so much. Let's slide all the way down the Gulf Coast and talk with Keith. Good morning, Keith. Hey, good morning. I'm glad to hear you and uh, wanted to wish you a happy birthday. Uh, Thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely, and uh, wanted to let you know the storytelling show that they did down here last night for MPB was great. 
and uh, you were spoken about very highly and friendly-like, so just so you know that. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you said, and friendly-like. <laughs> That's exactly right. They were all very, very pleased with you. But uh, um, anyway, I could go on with that. Hi to Miss S. Uh, met her at the Master Gardener Convention in Biloxi several years ago. Talked to her yeah. about getting thrown a few quid to get into a Springsteen show there in London. But my question, Felder, is I took down that 400-year-old oak tree, and I chipped it up, and I put some 10-10-10 on top of it. Can I put uh, uh, St. Augustine directly over the top of those chips, or what should I do? No, uh, St. Augustine grows in, it grows roots in just dirt. Uh, and the and the sod that you put out there has got to be in con- direct contact with real dirt, not caught up in mulch or not c- in in uh, in thatch or weeds or anything like that. It really needs to be in contact with dirt. So if you're going to do that, I would haul in a little bit of real topsoil. You know, the stuff we call dirt, the stuff you get under your fingernails, and spread a little bit of yeah. that over the top so that the grass can have something something denser that its roots can grow into and then once it gets the sap of that it can grow down into the you know into the the bark mulch beneath there but it needs to start off growing in contact with something that's a lot denser than than bark mulch so dirt okay that's all i really needed and oh yeah and i'll close with we had a lot of conversations with doc about dr dirt at the uh storyteller show last night and it was it was fun but thanks for your time i appreciate you Thank you so much, Keith. I appreciate that. Okay. And uh, folks, All right. Uh, Java, I don't know if a lot of people, but every now and then we have reference Dr. Dirt. When I first started the M- MPB, my co-host was a guy from Edwards. He called himself Dr. Dirt. And for four, four and a half years, he was my co-host. He passed away, sadly, a few years ago. And I just had a book that came out last spring called Maverick Gardeners. And the subtitle is Dr. Dirt and Other Determined Independent Gardeners. Heck of a gardener, no horticulture training, but a better gardening skills than this old horticulture has. He could grow anything at just plain D-I-R-T, dirt. Anyway, so if you wonder who Dr. Dirt was, uh, you can actually go to my blog, blog, and I've got a little essay about Dr. Dirt. And uh, he was a, a fantastic creature. And there's and also so some... Some clips, um, Felder, if anybody wants to do a YouTube dive, um, you guys were featured, I believe it was on um, Mississippi Roads um, a couple years ago. And, um, yeah, it's a great, a great feature with Dr. Dirty yourself. Yeah, right after after Hurricane Katrina, he and I uh, got on MPB and solicited plant donations. And people brought a whole bunch of plants to the MPB studio there in Jackson. We loaded up my little pickup truck and took them down there and uh, shared them with other people. Planted some at a school garden, you know, where people are displaced. With, and, uh, uh, so we actually collected plants. We call it recoastalization. That's a word that he termed, <laughs> uh, a, a word that he coined. That's nice. So, uh, Man, I, I got a question of you. I know you're not a tomato eater, so so you're the per, you're the perfect person to ask this. But I've got this almost ripe red tomato. What do you think I ought to do with it? Throw it in a cat or slice it into a sandwich or put it in some soup? What would you do if somebody gave you a tomato and you had to do something with it, and other than just throw it away? If I had, you don't like them. Yeah, if I had to if do something had, with it, I would. Um, I would maybe put it in like a pasta. Or um, or some tomato soup. I'm not I'm not, I'm not adverse to tomato soup. 
Okay. Well, sometime, maybe, maybe next week or two, we can, one of those answers, the question I'm going to ask is, what is that jelly-looking stuff in a tomato anyway? <laughs> but anyway, it, it's been kind of rock and rolling today, Java. Yes, it has. It's We're at the end of the show, and it came really fast. Okay, well, uh, it's time for me to do what I do best on Friday afternoon because it's uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon for me. It's time to head to a pub. It might be hot in Mississippi, but the beer in England is warm. Anyway, uh, I'm Horticulture's Fell Rushing. We've been just chatting with folks. I don't know everything. Some stuff I wish I didn't know. If you have questions during the week, go to feldrushing.blog and click that email me thing. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.